feel uh, some need this morning to apologise for a very croaky voice, but um, have typically written my sermon notes out in full, so if I do run out of voice, Amanda, (laughs) it'll be an experiment in mission, and you might lose a few friends, but (laughs) we'll see what happens. I want to speak a little this morning about neighbourhood and I don't know about you but as soon as I think about that word I think about the place where I grew up and the environment around about us where we lived in uh, a little place called Ferntree Gully. Uh, Typically my brother and some of the other friends from up the street and I used to walk to school and so we became very acquainted with our neighbourhood. We walked down past the Orth's place down the hill round the corner past the bowling green which in the morning was often was being mowed in the evening quite often there was a great um, collection of bowling ladies or bowling men and then across a bit of a grassy car park and then a shortcut through the creek and past the car yard and past the few service station kind of tyre repair joints Kentucky Fried Chicken as it was called in those days you notice the subtle name change fried is not such a popular word anymore so change the name to KFC across the school crossing with the grumpy crossing lady and there we were <coughs> it was quite an adventure morning and evening and there was one place <coughs> that really added to the excitement of the adventure because as we went down the hill and around a corner there was a house that had a very high fence and it was a fence that was made you use your imagination here uh, quite tall brick pillars probably about five or six feet high with a gap of about two and a half meters between them with big steel panels pressed panels kind of pressed steel so they held their shape which were wonderful because we discovered as children that if you went and hit them, they resonated a little bit like a Buddhist gong. (laughs) And so in typical puerile fashion, childlike fashion, as we walked to school, we would typically bang the panels and they'd boom. Uh, And I'm imagining that the person who lived there probably didn't really appreciate it. But that uh, that wasn't half the fun that we had because behind the panels was a dog (laughs) who we called Buffa. We didn't have a clue what the name of the dog was, but we called the dog Buffa. And whenever you hit the panels, Buffa would just go ballistic. And so it became quite the game. And I'm not suggesting that this was a good game, please understand that. (laughs) But when you're a kid, it seemed like a lot of fun. We'd hit the panels and buffers uh, instantly would start this rabid kind of barking. And all along the fence, we'd hit the panel, buffer would be there. And then we'd get to the gate. Now, again, use your imagination. The gate was, a, was an equally large panel on rollers with a gap of about this much underneath it. And so buffer would get underneath, he could probably only see our feet and ankles, but we could see his canine's bed and and the dog's spittle kind of spraying out as Buffer was desperately trying to get at these assailants, smearing his spit on the kind of the pathway, and then off we would go, having had a great time stirring up Buffer. Until one afternoon, as we walked home, we noticed that Buffer's gate was open. 
And so the three of us there, my brother and our friend Andrew and I stopped and we looked and we thought, this could end really badly. (laughs) What to do? All the times we'd yanked Buffer's chain, so to speak. We had every expectation that if Buffer ever got out, he would want to extract um, justifiable, I should say, revenge. So what to do? Should we walk along uh, the, the quickest way home and risk running into uh, this manic buffer who is now free? Or should we take a U-turn and go back and around the long way? Now, as kids, it was an anathema to walk the long way. And you probably would have been the same when you were young, you know. But on this occasion, bravery was overcome by uh, common sense, and so we chose discretion over valour and walked the long way home. (laughs) Now, I'll tell you that story because when I think back to my childhood, uh, that's the kind of neighbourhood I think about, and when we think about neighbourhood, that's uh, that's the image that comes to mind. Our neighbourhood was not a theoretical or a, a disembodied place. It was flesh and blood. It was people who lived there. It's where we played sports on the streets. We lived in a court, and so there were very little cars. We'd play cricket through summer. We'd play footy through winter. Uh, we'd ride our bikes around like lunatics all through the holidays. We walked our dog there, we rode our bikes. We roamed through that whole area on those lazy summer holidays. Our neighbourhood was the bowling ladies down the road at the bowling club in their starched white dresses. Our neighbourhood was an old farm at the top of the street where we spent hours climbing trees and building hubbies and and bike tracks and forts and stuff like that. Our neighbourhood was people who had migrated from Switzerland. There was about three families in the same area, I think, and so they spoke with strong accents and they and they ate strange things like fondue. Who's ever heard of fondue? Um, our neighbourhood was the man across the road who had a valiant, uh, a valiant station wagon, white, with an aerial with a fox tail attached to it. Very cool. His wife, uh, Alison, <clears throat> her way of calling the children, her children, her two children back, if they were roaming around the neighbourhood, was to stand on her front steps and whistle. She could whistle like no one I've ever known. And those kids, no matter where they were, they knew that was the time to get to home because if they didn't, they'd get more than just a whistle. (laughs) Now, in painting um, that picture, and it is for me a very rich one, perhaps I'm prompting memories of the neighbourhood you grew up in or perhaps even the neighbourhood that you're part of now. Or perhaps your neighbourhood looked nothing like this. And I'm sure that there's lots of stories that could be told from among a gathering like this as diverse as we are about our experiences in neighbourhoods, some of them rich and some of them memorable for the right reasons, perhaps some stories not so memorable. And today I want to revisit a topic that I spoke about back in 2019, which is back in the dark ages really. Um, Broadly, where is our neighbourhood? Where is our neighbourhood? And I want to think about this today because much has changed since 2019. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been thinking about the very different context that the church ministers into as a consequence of the pandemic that we are experiencing. And one of the things that um, we recaptured, at least during the thick of that season of COVID, was the significance of being local. 
because for most of us, we ended up having to work from home. And that's a rather unusual experience for many people. We actually looked out our windows, and this was literally my experience, and realised there's an awful lot of people who live in my neighbourhood that I didn't have a clue were there. There were always people walking their dogs or riding their bikes or doing stuff in that space. And on the back of this, it would be really easy, if perhaps a little bit naive, for me to say, you know, as a church, we need to recapture what it means to being represented locally, and that's true... But I reckon there's actually some deeper questions that we need to ask about neighbourhood as we think about that. Not just the simplistic, you know, we need to be present in the streets that we live in. That is absolutely the case. But what does it actually mean to be uh, in the neighbourhood? For those of you who were here in 2019, the question about where is our neighbourhood followed the the question uh, that you will probably be familiar with, one that precedes it, one that Jesus was asked, who is my neighbour? There's a story there in the scriptures about a teacher of the law who, and it tells us there, who wanted to justify himself, uh, who came to Jesus and said, who is my neighbour? Now, this guy came with an agenda, and I've spoken about this just a couple of weeks ago. The agenda was to try and get myself off the hook in terms of responsibility, because he had a very narrow definition of who a neighbour should be. And Jesus turned that question in Luke chapter 10, uh, the question that gave rise to the story of the Good Samaritan. And the take-home application from that story is not so much who is my neighbour, but how am I to be a good neighbour? Jesus twisted the story, twisted the question to something much, much more significant and a lot more difficult, in fact, as far as this young teacher of the law was concerned. Not so much can I define my neighbour so I know who it is, but how am I to actually act as a neighbour? And I'd be really interested if we could kind of take that interplay between the teacher of the law and Jesus and in an entirely fictitious, hypothetical way, wonder what Jesus might have said if the question that that guy had asked was not so much, who is my neighbour, but where is my neighbourhood? Just reflect on that for a minute. What might Jesus have said if the question had been, where is my neighbourhood? Now again, let me um, play the hypothetical game. There's nothing in the scripture that supports this, so it's a dangerous piece of ground that I'm on. But just imagine that, uh, you know, this guy had come with an agenda when he asked that question, who is my neighbour? He wanted it nice and tightly defined so that he didn't have to exercise too much responsibility. Just imagine if he'd come to Jesus and said, where is my neighbourhood? Already having a preconceived idea about where my neighbourhood is. Hoping that Jesus would say, well, it's the house either side of you and the one across the road. And he would then have said, well, that's fine. I don't actually spend much time there, so I don't have any responsibility for those people. That's where it could have gone, hypothetically. What might Jesus have said if the question had been, where is my neighbourhood? And I can't help but wonder, consistent with some of the scripture that we're going to have a look at in the moment, that Jesus might have actually said, uh, your neighbourhood is wherever you are. 
Now, at the start of the message, I did describe for you an experience of neighbourhood. That's what I think of when I think about neighbourhood. And in some respects, it was probably a little mischievous of me to do that because it has already framed our thinking about neighbourhood. Let's dump that thinking for a second. The reality is that neighbourhoods are very different wherever they happen to be and are certainly different to what it was years ago. So, for instance, in our time, back, you know, say 50 years ago, it was quite common for all the kids to play together out on the street. Nowadays, <clears throat> I suspect, if we saw a posse of kids playing out on the street, what would be the question? What are they up to? <laughs> Something strange is happening here. Because it's not typical anymore, is it? It's unusual to see large groups of children. It's unusual to see people in their front yards. I've talked about how even the construction of our houses has altered our neighbourhoods. You know, that double garage is the first thing you see when you look at a house. Drive in, shut the door, close the world off. And things have changed. The world's not as safe as it was. Kids still have bikes, but there's not the same freedom to roam. Uh, the kind of activities that children and young people engage in has also changed. Neighbourhoods are different. And one of the questions I've been thinking about this week is what does it actually mean to be a neighbour in a digital world? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Woe betide the church that ignores that reality. We have to think about that. What does it mean to be present in that space as a neighbour? Much has changed in the last generation, and it's worth being honest about this, because otherwise we might be accused of chasing some sort of nostalgic and old-fashioned but unhelpful idealism about what constitutes a neighbourhood. What might it mean for us in Wodonga and District Baptist Church to be a part of our neighbourhood wherever we happen to be? That's the ex a question I'd like to explore just briefly. There's some really, uh, really good data in the scripture affirming neighbourhood or place. We're going to use that language a little interchangeably this morning. There's a, an enormous stamp of approval in the New Testament by God on place or neighbourhood because Jesus came and lived in a neighbourhood. Jesus came and was found as a living, breathing person in a place. And it's worth stopping and thinking about the significance of that because Jesus didn't kind of turn up on earth hovering around as some sort of disembodied spirit in a, in a nether world like some kind of poltergeist, you know, a ghostly kind of figure who appeared to people in the darkness or in their dreams. Jesus was a flesh and blood person. He lived in a place. He lived in a neighbourhood. And when Jesus came to earth, he didn't set himself up on some kind of a sanctified sanctuary up on the nearby mountain and say to people, come, come up here and, and experience my holiness. He was there in the neighbourhood. He was there in that place where the stuff of life happened. I'm not sure uh, whether it was last week or the week before. I was thinking as we were reflecting on some of these same kind of thoughts, you know, Jesus experienced life just like we have and experienced life in a community, in a place just like we have and expressed the life of the kingdom of God through his life in that place. And that's really significant because it's a model for us. 
Jesus didn't remove himself. He was there in the dirt and the dust and the sweat and the work and the tears and the joys and the sorrows and the relationship and the tensions and the anxieties of community. He walked the streets. He went to the synagogues. He visited people's homes. He sat in the squares. He was familiar with the mud and the, and the messiness and the cooperation and the jealousies of neighborhood. Jesus did the kingdom of God there amongst the people that he was with. And there must be an example there for us to follow. There's another passage way back in the ancient literature of the Old Testament. I invite you to have a look at that in the, in the book of Jeremiah. It's Jeremiah chapter 29. Now, this um, chapter in Jeremiah will ring bells for many of you because lots of people talk about, you know, Jeremiah 29, that's my favourite Bible passage, but we're going to actually read the bit that comes before the part that's typically cited as people's favourite Bible passage. In Jeremiah 29, we have a message that was given by God through the prophet uh, Jeremiah to the people of Israel who were in exile from Jerusalem in Babylon. So their circumstances were difficult. And Jeremiah wrote these words. This is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers you too will prosper. And my apologies for the two there. Um, that's what you get when you do um, dictation to the computer. <laughs> that's what you get for not proofreading what you dictate to the computer too. Now, I don't know about you, but when uh, we talk about Jeremiah 29, uh, people typically default to verse 11, which says, For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a future. It's a verse, it's a great verse. It's a verse typically lifted out of the context and applied without thinking about the context. And it's worth uh, being reminded that the context actually is a message directed to God's people who were in a state of shock and bewilderment and to some degree, uncertainty, even fearfulness about the future. A, ca a, ca a catastrophe had overwhelmed them. Something terrible had happened. It seemed that the promises of God had somehow failed. But if we have a look at the verses that there are on the screen, uh, uh, there are some really significant observations that we might make about God's commitment to his people being in a place. And again, we need to be a little bit careful about lifting this out of the context that it's in too. But broadly speaking, I think we can make these applications with some confidence. Let me just share um, three or four with you. First of all, what we see here is God encouraging the exiles to take a long-term view of their, their situation or the place that they are in, a long-term view of their neighbourhood. It takes time to build houses, doesn't it? takes a long time at the moment. Uh, <laughs> it takes time to plant, to grow and to harvest. These things don't happen quickly. It takes time. 
And one of the things that we acknowledge and honour the work that David and Eliza are doing is it's a work that takes time. It's a commitment that they have made to the place that's not worked out in a week or a month or even in a year. It's over a number of years. And from a church point of view, I think we need to think in the same kind of a way in terms of the relationships that we have with the neighbours that we have, either physically around us or wherever we might be. It takes time. It takes an investment of time and energy. We think about the Thursday night meals that uh, the team is doing. That didn't start Thursday night a few months ago. That came from a relationship that's been built over years. It takes time. God encourages the exiles to take a long-term view of the place that they will be in. That's the first thing. Sorry, I should have given you um, that. The second one is this. um, The exiles are encouraged to invest into the life of the neighbourhood and not to stand back from it. The whole encouragement there to... um, to, to marry and be given in marry to pray for the peace and prosperity of the city. It's actually drilling deep holes of connection, isn't it? There is an economic investment, planting gardens, growing, building. There's a relationship investment in marrying and having children and giving them in marriage. It requires a presence, a degree of integration into the life of the community that can't happen if you're holding your neighbourhood at length. The third thing we see here too is a really uh, strange word in the context, but an important one. Um, God says to the people, pray for your neighbourhood. Pray for the place that you are in. Now that would have kind of nettled Israel a little bit because typically uh, people were not given to praying for their oppressors. They were not giving to praying for those who had, um, well, basically were their enemies. It's one thing to pray for your friends, but for your enemies... That's a tough assignment. And yet here in this very unique passage, Israel is encouraged to pray for the peace and the prosperity of those that they were oppressed by. In fact, if you look at the original language, uh, three times uh, the word shalom is used. A really significant word in the Old Testament, this idea of shalom. It's a word that means bringing the overall or or seeking the overall well-being of the community, the neighbourhood, the place where you are. And the emphasis here in this passage is for God's people to be active in seeking the overall well-being of the community that they were part of. Get involved. Advocate for the whole community and the well-being of the community. And the fourth thing uh, that God encourages in this message to the exiles is be connected. Don't stand back. Invest. Be part of the community. Don't think this is just going to be for a short time. Now, in this context, this was significant, and I'll explain why in a second. Um, There were some, and you'll see this alluded to in verse 8 and 9, there were some amongst the people who were saying... This isn't going to last long. You know, God's going to do something really quickly. And God takes issue with this. He says, don't let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I've not sent them, declares the Lord. We don't know exactly what they were saying, 
but it would appear that they were actually saying something opposite to what God has said earlier in this passage. Perhaps they were saying, it'll be over before you know it. So don't do too much, you know, just as you are kind of thing. Don't invest. Don't do any of these things. I'm currently um, working up a series of talks for another organisation on the topic. This is an interesting topic, preparing for persecution. <laughs> How do you do that? It's actually a tougher assignment than I thought. But one of the ways that sometimes Christians think about preparing for persecution is, is, is withdrawal, you know, circle the wagons. Let's buy some property up somewhere behind, I don't know, in the mountains behind Eskdale there, create a commune, we can go there and we'll be okay. The desire to separate from the world uh, and withdraw from place is not a new one, but it's in conflict with what Jesus taught in John chapter 17, where he said these words in his high priestly prayer, I have given them your word and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. That's important to note, we're not of the world. We're not worldly in the sense that we embrace everything that's going on in our world. But Jesus' prayer was this, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. That's a really fascinating prayer. Not that you might run away and, and have a nice easy life behind Eskdale or wherever, but that you might be sanctified in that place, that you might grow in godliness even under pressure. There's a thought. I spoke, and I think I've shared this uh, with you before, so I apologise. Um, years ago, I was chatting to some pastors from Myanmar whose prayer was, you know, under, under the pressure that they were under from the regime, don't ask that the persecution stops, but that we will be faithful. That's a pretty brave prayer, isn't it? Don't ask for an easy life, but that we will be faithful. And I think this connection is important even in the midst of strife and difficulty because, well, for two reasons. One is, how else are people going to hear the gospel if we're not here? Now, if Christians isolate ourselves from the world around us, who's going to share the love of Jesus with them? The second thing, and this is highlighted in Jesus' word here, um, sanctify them by the truth. Um, we learn to become Christ-like when we are under pressure. We learn character. It's developed under pressure. Another story, I'm sure I've told it here too, so apologies again. Um, very clever people there in Arizona built the biospheres years ago. Do you remember those great big domes they had? They decided to see if they could build a self-contained world. They put in a number of scientists. I can't remember how many there were. Uh, clever, clever people. They ended up having a big division and uh, almost came to blows. Uh, that's not what I want to tell you about. Um, <laughs> That, that in itself is an interesting study, actually. Um, they planted stuff, they grew stuff, they grew trees. And then uh, what they didn't realise happened was this, the trees would get to a certain stage and then a branch would just fall off and then another branch would fall off. And they're kind of scratching their heads going, what's going on here? And the problem was the tree had never been tested by the winds. It had never actually grown in a way to develop strength. And let me tell you, we had a manna gum on the place that we used to own down there in Mailer's Flat. It was an enormous tree, enormous tree. It was a beautiful tree. You walk under it in the right time, you could just smell the honey in the flowers. It was beautiful. 
and it went through some storms. My goodness, there were times I thought at night time, surely I'll get up in the morning and that tree will be gone. But no, there it is, it's standing up. And it was the strength of the tree developed because it was pushed around by the wind. One day a branch did come down and it wasn't because of the wind, it was because it had grubs in it. And I thought, this will be great firewood. Got out there with the chainsaw, cut it up. I'll split it up. Do you think I could split that wood? Not a chance. Hydraulic splitter. Oh, no problems. Not a chance. It was just so twisted and gnarled because of the pressure that it had been under. That's where characters developed. And Jesus is making this point here in uh, John chapter 17. Don't take them out of the world. Protect them from the evil one. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The fact is, neighbourhoods are impoverished if the church is not present. So what does this mean for us as, uh, as we move ahead here as Padonga District Baptist Church? Let me just um, throw uh, uh, some really practical things at you to think about as we, um, as we move ahead in this next season. First of all, uh, we need to think broader in terms of neighbourhood. I've described for you a neighbourhood that I grew up in. That's one expression. Our neighbourhood might well be wherever we happen to find ourselves, whether it be at the sporting club or at whatever. It's in all sorts of places. So broadening our definition of neighbourhood is really significant. Second thing to reflect on is this, and I've not said this publicly and probably should have said it previously, we will continue as a church to gather like this on a Sunday morning, but this is not our primary point of evangelism or connection with our community. That might come as a surprise, but it's not. This is where we gather to worship God, we exalt his name, we glorify Jesus in this space, uh, we gather to uh, recharge the batteries, we teach the word, we encourage maturity in Christ, and we equip the brothers and sisters to go out and be the church, because that's where the primary points of connection will be, where you are through the week. For that reason, we will not be going down the road of the seeker-sensitive service. You might have heard that kind of stuff where we're careful about the language, we don't offend anyone, you know, all that kind of stuff. We'll always talk about the gospel, that's very central to our faith. But I'm not going to dumb stuff down or be particularly hung up about language in this space because we want to grow people here to be effective there in our neighbourhoods. Third observation is this, we will prioritise mission that takes us out of the church and into our neighbourhood. We have um, been equipping ourselves practically uh, with, with stuff, even this last little season, that we can do this with. Our coffee cart's got wheels on it. You know why? Because it came with wheels. Good answer. No. <laughs> it's so that we can wheel it up and take it with us. That's the plan. One of the briefs when we were looking at that was it needed to be mobile, needed to be able to be used in other places, not just here. Our barbecues have wheels. They're awful wheels. I'm going to try and fix that. But we want to be able to take them off-site and do stuff. We've bought equipment like a sound system that we can actually use outside so that we can do stuff in the park or down at Junction or wherever. We want to prioritise uh, ministry outside the walls of our church. The fourth observation is this, and I'm happy to say this publicly, too. We want to encourage risk-taking in outreach. 
We want to encourage creativity. We want to encourage people who are saying, let's have a go at something. It's almost um, goes against my grain a little bit in some ways because me, I like to kind of organise and have every, get the ducks lined up, so to speak. Right? I want to make sure everything's in place before we have a go. What do we do with these characters who say, we want to have a go at something. Well, here's what we're going to do. We'll say, we're cheering for you. Absolutely. Go for it. Does it matter if it doesn't go so well? Well, let's pray into that space and hope that it does. But if, it, if you learn something on the way, it's fantastic. If it falls over after six months and you say, well, it didn't work the way it, we thought, that's okay. Let's be permission giving about that stuff. Instead of, no, we can't do that. We did that before. It didn't work. Or, no, that'll never happen. Or, oh, I don't think God's really in it. Let's ask the Lord of the church for ideas and see where he might lead us in this space and be prepared for failure. That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. Failure is how you learn. And it's by experimenting that we might uh, discover new wineskins, so to speak. Good ideas certainly don't have to be my ideas either, by the way. Um, I'm more than happy to hear other people come and say, we'd like to have a go at this. Fifth observation is this, we dream, I dream, as a church leadership, we dream about having small groups scattered all around our district uh, in our neighbourhood. In my finest moments, I imagine each of those small groups acting as a dynamic place of care and learning, but also of outreach. And it doesn't have to be, um, you know, Salvation Army band kind of outreach or whatever. It might just be by inviting a neighbour to come in when you're having a meal together and exposing them to a Christian environment. Over these past few weeks, I've asked this question a couple of times, or perhaps not so much a question, but an observation. How many people in the church do you reckon became Christians as a result of coming to a meeting or as a connection with a speaker, you know, a crusade or whatever? I've done this survey before. When I've asked that question, a handful of hands will go up. When you ask the question another way, how many people became followers of Jesus because of a connection with a friend or a neighbour or someone who expressed love to you? It's a forest of hands. I'd love to tell you the story of one of our dear brothers who's not able to come to church anymore because he's just that little bit old. He told me the story of how he became a Christian. It's because his neighbours over the road were Christians and they were doing some stuff right here at this church during the kind of construction phase. They needed some help cleaning up. And he was a house cleaner. That was his job. Like They went and cleaned up after construction. They said to him, I won't use his name. Some of you know who I'm talking about. How about coming and helping? Oh, I'd love to. That'd be fine. A generous, kind-hearted person. How about coming to church with us on Sunday night? Oh, okay. How about coming to church with us next week? Oh, all right. And it just grew from there. This man and his wife came to the Lord. Now, you wouldn't think that asking someone to come and help clean up a mess at the church might actually be an evangelistic activity, would you? But it was. How good is that? Totally left field, but effective nonetheless. And the last observation is this. As a church, and I alluded to this earlier, we need to ask, where is our neighbourhood? Michael Frost talks about third places. First places... Uh, where we live, our houses. Second place is where we work. Third place is where people go to spend recreational time. The coffee shops, the soccer club, the football, whatever it might be. We need to be asking what's driving people? What are people's needs? What are they afraid of? 
How can we show the love of Jesus? How can we communicate our hope? And as I've been reflecting on these six points through this week and others like them, the curious thing is that the list that I've just thrown at you there is remarkably similar to what I would have said to you even before COVID. And that just reminds me that the Great Commission is timeless, isn't it? It transcends time, it transcends circumstances. The Great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples, baptising them into the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Jesus commands is a timeless command. No pandemic's ever been able to derail that. We just need to be a bit smarter about how we do it now. And that's the challenge for us as a church. Let's pray. Father, we are encouraged and we are excited by the opportunities before us in this season of life and ministry, not only at a local level as we have been reflecting on that, but internationally too as we have participated today in the work that David and Eliza are doing. Lord, we do pray that you will grant to us creative thinking, that you will embolden us in our willingness to experiment, to try stuff, to step out of our comfort zones, to see the needs around us and to press in even though we might be frightened of the response that we get. To do that graciously, to do that wisely and to do that with the leading of your spirit, knowing God that you go with us. Lord, our desire is not to make a name for ourselves, not to elevate the name of Wodongran District Baptist Church, but that the name of Jesus would be the name above all names, the name of Jesus would be on the lips of the people in our neighbourhood, wherever our neighbourhood might be. And so, God, we pray today that you will equip us, encourage us wherever we spend our time through this week, with whoever we spend our time with this week. Help us to radiate the love of Jesus. Help us to experience that too, Lord. Help us to be open to what your Spirit is saying to us as individuals, but more broadly to us as a church. Lord, we thank you for your presence with us here in this place today. For you're a God who is still anchored in place. Lord, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.